Daru Strong, Phil Daru. I'm very happy that you'll be here. How are you, bro? I'm good, man. I like how you say my name, actually. Uh, can you talk where you started your YouTube channel, actually? Yeah, well, I started doing it because I own my own facility. Uh, I own my own gym. Uh, at the age of 22, I, I opened it up, and I was like, man, I need to put, I need to find a way to bring more people to the gym. So I started really just doing it on there for my business, and then I started putting out, like, Epic, like videos of me training, videos of my clients training, videos of my athletes going and doing what they do and, and uh, getting them better. So it started from there. It didn't really pick up until about maybe four years ago, four or five years ago, where I really started to, uh, to take it more serious. And I got a, uh, I got a videographer. I got a media, media team around me. And now it's just taken off. I have a guy that a guy that I work with who's a partner of mine that kind of molds everything together and he knows that industry very well when it comes down to social media marketing and we kind of work together as, as, as of now. And I think the one thing that, that really struck me is I actually asked, I don't know who you, if you know who Elliot Hulse is, but he used, to have, he used to have a YouTube channel called Ask Elliot. And I did a program with his partner, Chris Barnard, with, with Overtime Athletes' business name. And I did a program called Fight Ready, which is an MMA-based program. It's, an, it's a 12-week program. And uh, the reason why Chris you know, contacted me was because he, did, he knows things from a strength and conditioning standpoint, but he doesn't work with fighters. So that was, uh, that was my end. And he basically called me up. He was like, man, I don't know anybody in the industry that knows this stuff as much as you. Um, so I wanted to get you on board and do a program with you. And so from there, he kind of showed me the ropes on how to program and market the programs and then also, or not program, but, you know, market the program and also go about putting it together for the end user where I'm just used to basically putting things on Excel spreadsheets or even a Word document and giving them to my athletes where this one had a whole system in place where you had to have a launch, you know, a, a pre-launch, a launch. You had to make sure that you had a landing page and a whole website that the, that the end user can go on to and see what the program is about before they even go ahead and purchase. And then once they purchase, they have access to a portal. All these things was brand new to me because, you know, I'm more of a brick and mortar, like, you know, actual gym owner for that type of business. And I'm a coach. So I like my background is strength and conditioning. My background is exercise science had really no background in business administration or entrepreneurship. I just kind of fell into that role because I had that ability to do it. So, you know, from there, he kind of showed me the ropes. And then the person that was working with him actually came over to work with me because they were interested in MMA. So then we started to work together and formulate a bunch of different programs, fight ready, heavy hitter, ground control, and now body armor, the new program that's mm -hmm. out. You know, and uh, and then from there, obviously, that all goes together with the YouTube channel because we definitely want to make sure that we're selling the programs based off the YouTube channel. And then I was just like, I need to put out quality information. I saw a lot of like things that weren't right in my world of MMA, and I wanted to make sure people understood how to properly train. Um, even the ones that couldn't get out to like the UFCPI or couldn't get out to American Top Team to actually see me coach, you know, I gave them the opportunity to, to take a look into my world and actually see it for what it is and how we go about doing things on a constant basis. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. Right. So you both gained from that relationship at first. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it started off, like I said, started off really slow. I started my Instagram, like, I want to say 10 years ago. And that was another reason why, again, I was trying to build my business. I was trying to bring people to the gym. 
And then uh, my wife actually told me to get an Instagram. I was really big on Facebook at the time. This was probably like 2011, I believe. Yeah, the time was different for sure. Yeah. yeah. So like, I was like, I don't really want to put pictures of my food up on the on Instagram. Like that's what that that's what was big at the time. I understand. So I started to I put up a one video I remember, and it got a lot of hits, and it got a lot of people to the gym. And I'm like, oh, I got something here. And um, you know, I was killing it on Facebook with Facebook, not even Facebook ads, just just you know, just putting out pictures and videos and putting together mem like uh, a membership area where all the people that were members of my gym, we had a private Facebook group. And uh, that helped a lot when it came down to, you know, referrals and things like that. So it all came about just from one, trying to get my training methodologies out there, trying to get what I do from a business standpoint out there, and then also educating people. And then when I start to see people actually getting, you know, uh, results from it and people thanking me for this information I went full on because I do like to help people that's one of the reasons why I'm a coach I'm very selfless and that's why I do believe that I made a better coach than an athlete because of the fact I am very selfless where coaches or I should say athletes need to be very selfish and that's just by nature because they have to worry about themselves in order for them to be great so you know that's that's why I started that's why I'm still going and that's why we've been successful over the years. And also I've been able to help as many people as possible around the world. Yeah, I understand what you mean. Like, like a, a few days ago, one of my friends from the fight site, he, he did an interview with Wes Ember, who used to, who used to coach music, Romachenko and everything. And he expressed that uh, since he's a kid, he was always good with sports. He was good at it, but he was just talented to explain stuff to people. And he had a good eye for the sport. And he actually felt better helping people getting through stuff than doing it for himself, even though you take care of yourself and everything, but like, because, and uh, so most people, they know you from ATT now because you're pretty well known in the game and everything. But there was one thing you said before, I wanted to come back to this. You know, you start to put some cameras in the gym. And uh, I used to work in the music studio before. And I remember I was shooting like some session and some artists, they didn't want any part of the video just because they did not trust me. They could have been, you know what I mean? They could be, I could be recording something when they say something that's bad, they're doing something wrong. I wonder at first if it wasn't a struggle to get some cameras in the gym or those fighters just don't care. Um, well, it depends. Like when I started coaching, I had, I had my own background of the sport itself. So I used to train my, my teammates really that trained with me. So that's how I really got my in. And, and I, was start, I started that American top team with Dean Thomas you know, from the jump. So it was a little bit easier for me because they seen how in shape I was. They seen how strong I was. You know, they seen the way I moved and they wanted to understand or at least learn from me in that way. So I used to just train my, my teammates. And then from there, the, the, the training helped the guys. So it bled into, you know, the other coaches around the area. And then those guys came over. And then ultimately, you know, later, like five, six years later down the line, that's when I ultimately got the call up to go to American Top Team, the, the headquarters, and, you know, work with those guys. And the first day, I got kind of thrown into the lion's den in, in a way because I had to work with Tisha Torres, Dustin Poirier, King Mola Wall, and Hector Lombard all in one group. So, like, so many different people, right, so many different times of their careers and just, just body frames and, and training backgrounds and all of that. And I had to make sure that I could, you know, dedicate the specifics to that individual, but also train them as a group, you know? So the system had to be 
you know, kind of structured as a skeleton. And then I would just plug and paste depending on the person and what they're doing or what they're working for. So that was one thing. And then, and then once the guys, once, once you get guys like Dustin Poirier and King Mo the Wall to buy in, like in the gym, it definitely helps you out with other fighters, you know? So that was the big thing. And then when they, and at that point, I was putting out a lot of content online too as well. So then other fighters that came to the gym were like, oh, I want to work with Phil. This, you know, so that, that, that did help too as well for the fighters that were new coming into the gym. And then um, when Joanna came to the gym, she kind of knew about me through just fans, I guess, in Poland. So she knew about me when she came in. She asked Mike Brown if she could work with me. And I was like, I was almost going to ask Mike Brown. I'm like, yo, let me work with Joanna because I'm a fan. You know what I mean? Um, but I knew that I could help her. That was the one thing. Like, if I'm, a, I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm not going to fanboy to the point of like, oh, I just want to work with you because I want to work with you and I like you as a fighter. I want to work with you because I know I can get your game better. I know I can improve something. And if that's the case, then, then I'm going to push to work with that individual. Like, you know, there's plenty of other fighters that aren't are a part of ATT that I would love to work with. You know what I mean? That I know that I can help them again, but I am a team guy. So I don't want to you know, venture out in my world. Um, but again, there's so many different things. And that's why I work with so many different combat sports too, as well with judo and boxing. Now I'm working with those individuals too. I got uh, two judo Olympians and then I have professional boxers, you know, uh, more yep. Yeah. I got Pereira who's fighting for, uh, against uh, Kovalev pretty soon. So we're getting him back into the gym, you know, and, uh, he's, a and he's a guy that I like because he's an old school guy. Like he's been in the game forever, but he's willing to do new things. And that's very important. Like, you know, I always, the old saying, you can't teach a new dog or old dog new tricks. He's kind of the opposite of that. Like he wants to learn new things. And, and that's the same that goes for every elite level fighter that I've come across. They're always willing to try new things. That's Andre Olofsky. That's King Mo the Wall. You know, these are the guys that have decades in the game and they're always willing to do new things, especially if they trust the individual that's trying to teach them. That was I was gonna mention about the guys you mentioned right now. They all had like up and downs in their career, but the longevity of their career is crazy. Yeah. It's like I don't know. Olofsky has been fighting. I was like, maybe 13, 14. Like it's been 15 years at least. Yeah, I, I I remember like one of his first fights in the UFC. I believe I was in elementary school. So I kind of I kind of I kind of talk a little bit about that man to him because I laugh, you know, because he's an old <laughs> man to me, you know, and uh, but but. You know, he's still he's still got a lot of life left in him, you know. He's not he's not the most agile person in the world, but he kind of never was, never was. He lost a little bit of speed obviously, but that comes with age. But the power is still, you know, somewhat there. The mobility is there um, enough to where he can be dominant in some fights and I think if he just gets that right matchup, you know, he'll be really good. Um, work ethic is still there. You know, that's another thing that I see with a lot of aging fighters that, that does tend to go is the work ethic and the speed. Um, power is still fairly there. Um, but again, and then the conditioning, you know, as long as we can maintain his level of endurance, um, that's going to be a huge benefit for him. But that's just in general. And then like with guys like King Mola Wall, who's been through the ringer, you know, they got, you know, seven ACL injuries and then he's got, you know, bone spurs and, and a hip replacement or hip resurfacing. There's so many things you have to work around. That's an issue that, that I had to, that I really had to cope with and, uh, and figure out a way to get these guys ready, even though I had to work around so many different injuries from past, you know, past fights and past training camps. So, I mean, that was the one thing that I found when I got to ATT. I was like, man, these older guys, I need to really take care of them 
in a way of not just getting them to be able to perform, but also to keep longevity and keep them healthy. Yeah, actually, I feel, so you, you, you start by being a fighter. Actually, you fought at welterweight, even lightweight, if I'm correct. Lightweight. And yeah. I have no idea how you made weight because I watched, uh, I don't know if I, I found the old fight, but I found one of your fights. I forgot the name of your opponent, but whatever. And you looked like a big, big, big welterweight. And you were young. You were probably like 21, 19, I forgot. Probably yeah, 19 or 21. Because you, you stopped after, like pretty early. Yeah, yeah, I started early. I started right after I got out of college, really. Um, and uh, actually, I was fighting in college, but then, like, I didn't say anything because the NCAA, I was playing football, American football at the time. Okay, and yeah, you don't have the right to make money, is that right? Yeah, yeah, you can't. So, like, like, like even, even they didn't even want you to play another sport, though. So, it could have been anything, unless it's, unless it's an NCAA-approved sport, which MMA is obviously not. So, like, I, I was doing boxing and, and MMA, and then when I got um, – in touch with the American top team after that. And I started really just, just going all in on MMA. And uh, yeah, I fought at 170 for my amateurs, you know, and then I turned pro at 155. Uh, but I, I walked around fairly light. I mean, I, I didn't, I probably walked my heaviest when I was fighting around 195. And that was when I was fighting at 170. So I carried it pretty well. I'm 5'8", so not like a, a huge guy at all. But, um, but the one thing that I did have over a lot of my opponents were was I was strong I was powerful I was very athletic I mean I still am um but you know so I <laughs> yeah. think that, that I haven't lost it you know but um you're a southpaw right what's that you're a southpaw lefted it right yeah yeah I, I favored southpaw because that's usually what I what I use I, I'm a lefty in sports but I'm a, I write with my right hand so. <laughs> dude same thing all right they, they forced me to write with that fucking right hand at school <laughs> when I was a kid but but yeah. I, but I'm I'm a left-handed for everything, even with the foot, everything. And yeah. actually, when I boxed, I fought orthodox, like converted Sarspo, just because I'm a lead-end guy. But everything I do is with my left hand, except for writing. It's crazy. Yeah, crazy. Old-school way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm happy, man, because now my son, I got to teach him how to write with his right, because he writes with his left, and it's like, all the way off the page. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he's got, he's, yeah, he's got stuff on his arms and stuff. So, I mean, yeah, and... and I think, like, for the most part, I felt real strong on my left side primarily. Like, my backhand, I felt, like, real strong. But then, like, my hooks and everything, like, turning over, rotating through the right quadrant of my body, the right transverse abdominals, like, I felt stronger there as okay. opposed to I could have probably switched it up. I mean, I've, I've done that, too, as well. Inside of fights, actually, you switch to orthodox. But that was mainly for takedowns, you know, and that's how you switch it up there. But Yeah, of course. I always think that a fighter should – you know, learn how to fight both ways just in case you have something going on, whether, whether, especially in MMA, because, you know, you get kicked and need and, you know what I'm saying? If that lead leg gets out, you need to make sure that you have the other one to put pressure. For sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then just days you have to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then also, like, there should just be a lot, a higher level of diversity in your striking. Yeah, even also to cut the cage, there's a lot of stuff. Even to, to do backup, there's a lot of stuff that, that you need to yeah. be able to work on both stands. Or at least being decent at your weakest one. That's not a problem if you have to be there for yeah. like at least a while. But yeah, if I ask uh, young Dao when he was 15, his favorite boxer or fighter, what, where would have been? Which one would have been? Would have yeah, been like someone you really like in boxing, MMA, it doesn't matter. It would, it would have definitely been boxing. I didn't, I didn't really want to do MMA. Oh, you're a boxing guy first? Yeah, yeah, I didn't man. Wanna, uh, yeah, because I did, I did Kempo Karate as a young kid. Okay. And I was always intrigued with boxing, but my favorite boxer was Mike Tyson. 
So like I, I had that style. Like I even used to fight like him for the first half of my my MMA career, you know. And then and then somebody was like, "You need to stop that shit," because <laughs> like, because I would I would dip so low that like head kicks come. Gonna up. get head kick, yeah. I was gonna say. Yeah. And I actually got head kicked by actually doing that. So I found a way. I was like, "All right, man, this this gotta stop." So I stood up a little bit more, and then I started to find my rhythm and my in my range and my and basically my movement. Um, but yeah, man, I was a big boxing fan and wanted to box all the way through. I boxed in the uh, off season of football, and then I was looking at a gym that was close by. It was Buddy McGurk's gym. Oh, great! Yeah, and the problem though, it was like forty five minutes away from my house. So like, I was thinking, I'm like, man. I can go there, but I ain't gonna be able to go there like twice a day because that's how I was gonna do it. I was probably gonna go morning and night, and and I'm like, man, that'll be a lot of gas, and I didn't have no money at the time. Like I was dirt poor, so like I was trying to find a way, and then I found a small and I found an ATT affiliate gym that was right next to my house, which was literally like ten minutes away. So I went there and was like, yeah, I just want to box. I'm gonna go to Buddy's gym, you know, every now and again. And then Dean kind of pulled me in and was like, try this out try this jujitsu class, try this wrestling class. And I was like, man, I, I don't want to do that. But he's like, man, you'll be good at it. And, and so then I started to do it. And I was like, man, all right, I'm, I'm pretty good. So I started taking MMA classes. And then I started to, and I took an MMA fight. And I was like, oh, man, this is, this is kind of fun. And ended up doing really well. So I stuck with that, you know, and in history. I feel like your, at least your passion and your background in fighting, it kind of helps you on daily basis in your work because like before, uh, before you, you pop up here, I was watching you uh, with Junior. Junior seems to be a super funny guy. He was like, he was all over the place all the time. Like very different energy from like a Joanna or Dustin. And uh, I, I don't know, you were, if you were working on, on power and you were explaining to him that what you, the muscle you wanted him to work was like the tricep because you talk about punching. And he yeah. kind of said yes, but like kind of yes, but you don't understand. And you mimic the movement and then directly say, oh, got it. So I felt, oh, that's great that you can use your knowledge in fighting and to, to get those guys to understand just anatomies, ID that they don't necessarily understand like us, for example. Yeah, because ref we call it reframing, right? So when I reframe, I'm basically trying to reiterate some type of technique, break down whatever that they can understand that when I translate it to them, they can get it without having to think so much, right? Because they know the sport and they know the movements that are going to, you know, help them increase their power production, strength, whatever the case. So when I go ahead and tell them like specific biomechanics of whatever they're, they're thinking about, right? Let's say whatever, your overhand or your jab hand or something along the lines of that, I have to reframe that so that they can understand it from that perspective of what they know as opposed to what I know. Because I know, I know, You know, I know the science of it. I can give them, you know, I can give them jargony words, but that's not going to relay over the information appropriately for them to cause a stimulus adaptation that's going to get them to the progressions that we need to. So for me, I'm like, all right, listen, think about throwing a punch. Like I always say this when they're throwing their med balls. So if they're doing a rotational med ball throw, I'm going to go ahead and simulate like an overhand or a jab or something along the lines of that because they can automatically get it It's just a, just an end, you know, they just got a ball at the end of their hand instead of their fist. And when they throw, it's ballistic. So they let it go just like they're throwing their hand. And then I want them to bring it right back so that we can work a little bit of specificity yeah. in that way. Again, I don't want to mimic or simulate um, exercises for the sport to 
cause maladaptation of biomechanics specifically for the sport. But we, I do like to train in specific ranges and planes of motion that will help with power and strength and all of that, you know, when it comes down to the sport itself. So yeah, having the ability to know how a movement feels inside the cage really plays well with my coaching ability because again, I know how it feels. I know what muscles you use. I know what it does to the nervous system. I know what it does to, you know, your, your oxygen levels. I know everything because I've been there. I've done that, you know, plenty of times. So, and also it helps with buy-in with the athlete because the athlete can respect the fact that I know what they've been going through, you know, when it comes down to camps. And also it goes to the fact that they understand the necessity to walk. Like, you know what I mean? I guess at the point you are junior and I was going to say, hey, yeah, of course you have like a trusting relationship that build over the years and everything. So you work together, but I mean, it always go, it's always great when someone understands the purpose of doing something. Like I was like this when I was a kid. If you tell me you have to do this, but don't explain to me, yeah, I don't want to do it. But if you tell me, but if you do this, you will be actually get better at this. I get, okay, I get it. So it helps to get like, to be oriented why you have to do this. That, that and, and you just said it, like Dustin, and, and the two different people, right? So with Dustin, like he likes to know what he's doing to a degree. But for the most part, he's like, man, just, just let, tell me what I got to do and I'll do it. You know, um, Junior is kind of the same way. The one that is very um, analytical is, uh, you know, Joanna and Jacek, she's very analytical, but she does like to just get after it. And there's a couple other fighters that are like, tell me why I'm doing this. Like why Maureen Shea is like that, my boxer. She was, she asks me, she asked me every question under the sun. It's not because she doesn't think that it's going to work. It's because she really wants to know. She yeah. wants to know why it's working. And, and that's the reason, like, you got to know the athlete. You got to know, you know, what type of personality do they have. And that's why I run tests in the beginning of the assessments so that I can understand the athlete from the inside out, not just from a physical standpoint, but also from a psychological standpoint. Super transition, Phil, because I wanted to talk about some of your content uh, that I watched and I already talked about. And for the people who watch this, well, everybody knows you, of course, and But most of the people who watch interview, they're like young fighters, up and coming fighters, or just people that just love everything about the fighting game, just not like just ball. And mm -hmm. I wanted to talk a little bit about like uh, all the, the process you created about like from some, like a fighter coming back from his vacation, let's say from his last fight, mm -hmm. from the pre camp, the camp, and the post camp. Mm -hmm. and, and like, so there is a video that you made, it was on Joanna Yonjecic when she fought. What a son. So I recommend, I will put it in the link also. I recommend people to watch this because to me it was more valuable than many, many, many stuff I heard before because it wasn't just someone telling me how the body works. I understood like different theories about the fighting that you're not going to spar crazy hard as soon as the fight starts. You need to know, for example, in which type of shape they arrive uh, in the camp because you give them some work pre-camp also. Yes. And that's part of the trusting relationship that you have. Like, how many people do you have that's supposed to do stuff outside of the camp? And when they arrive, you can rate their below or over the, yeah. the capacities. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's different for every individual. But I know that, like, I know the ones that are very diligent in their off-camp training. And that's, and that's the people that, like, really are champions or at the highest level. You know, they, they're constantly doing something. And even if they're not doing, like, 
physical preparation in, in a means of weight training, they're still getting their road work in, they're still getting their grappling rounds in, they're still getting light sparring in. So they're still staying somewhat fit. Um, and then for me, I'm just going to get them, once I get them into, you know, the training facilities and then I can start to assess everything, um, I'm basically seeing, okay, how well is their fitness level from a baseline perspective, from a general outlook? And, you know, whether that be a VO2 max, whether it be a lactate threshold test, whether that be, you know, muscular endurance or coordination or just maximal strength in general. Um, and then I'll go ahead and I'll monitor the way they progress. And then what we want to do is get them physically prepared, not just for the weight training, but also for the skills training going into camp. Because again, once you start camp, the skills training is going to be more of, a, of an importance, you know, on the hierarchy of demands. So with that being said, I got to make sure that these guys are physically prepared, physiologically and physically prepared to go into camp. Because once camp starts, then I'm more so on the back side where I'm actually trying to maintain a lot of stuff and maybe bring up some explosive power, maybe obviously bring up some conditioning from a sport-specific standpoint, from a time duration. But they should already have a baseline of, of work capacity before we start camp. And sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes I got to build it up inside a camp. And, you know, that's unfortunate. But, you know, for the most part, a lot of these guys, they take fights on short notice. So when that happens, I got to kind of make sure that I'm molding the situation, getting them that solid level of general physical preparedness, and also making sure that they're physically ready for the fight itself. So we'll do a lot of like sled dragging movements, things that are very efficient for the athlete to do. Um, if they know how to squat, if they know how to hinge, if they know how to press and pull, then obviously we'll keep those movements in because those are very beneficial when you're talking about um, dynamic correspondence to the sport. And what I mean by that is whatever has the highest transfer over to whatever they're doing inside the cage. Remember, if the sport of MMA or boxing or any combat sport, inside the weight room, whatever they do in the weight room, that's general in nature. That's GPP. That's what we call it. Anything outside of that right is go or anything that's outside of the ring or the cage is gpp work so for me i have to make sure that we're taking some general movement patterns that will highly transfer over into the the sport of what they're doing and their game plan because now once you start eight weeks out now the game plan is okay maybe they want to take this person down maybe they want to stop a takedown maybe they want to stand and bang maybe they want to work the jiu-jitsu so now i have to correlate the specific muscles that can fire effectively to help with the game plan, or I need to bring up lagging muscles because they're overusing them inside the skills training so I can balance out the body to reduce the risk of injury. So there's a lot of moving parts going on inside of camp, outside of camp, but the main thing that you gotta realize is outside of camp, we are going to build up a solid base of work capacity. Uh, you know, what one of my mentors always says, you can't, you can't shoot a cannon out of a canoe, so we need to have posterior chain strength, right? And a pyramid is only as tall as the width of its base. So we got to build that base. And so we can build, you know, up vertically. But there has to be a large width. So with that being said, I have to make sure that they have fitness to um, help with those other demands, right? And fitness being just general overall ability to take in stress. Now that you mentioned that, uh, I was going to ask you about the short notice because I felt it was interesting. You you created like a, a program, or at least it's an ATT-based program, where you actually give a rating to how hard or intense some of the exercises are. I think you call it RPE. I will never be able to say it in English. Uh, it's like uh, 
like a program you used and the name is like rate of perceived exertion. Oh yeah, RP. Uh -huh. Yeah, sorry, yeah, RP, yeah. And you also created like the ACW acute chronic workload. Mm -hmm. And you so you arrived so there is a video about this, it's not me getting some smart words like this because I watched the video. And <laughs> so that's the second video I was gonna mention that people should watch. It's how to be sure that you don't overtrain your fighter. Like it happened to Junior Dos Santos before he was in ATT. He said, like for the Velasquez fight, he was just dead even before to start the fight. So this is also something that's super interesting because you find a way to rate what type of exercise is like a 10 or a 6, depending like yeah. how intense it is on the body. And that's something on short notice that must be very difficult to, to use. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 there's a lot of math involved a little bit, you know, with that. I mean, you got to be cognizant of the intensities of the training. And what I mean by that is, is not the intensities from a, a weight percentage, but more for, from an intensity zone. So let's say, for instance, like, like you talked about the one through 10, if you have a, a, a boatload of 10s, right? 10 being the maximal effort you're going to put out, right? Being 100% effort. If you have a ton of that inside, and inside of a training week and then overall throughout the training month, it's going to be very hard for you to recover. So you also have to make sure you're taking into account all the other specific training adaptations that you're trying to acquire and then what other modalities of the training are you working in that week so skills training has to be adequate to that and then you also have to make sure that you're taking in your conditioning and your strength work now what i usually do for me and this goes into the video but i work a condensed conjugate method model so basically what we do is we work maximal effort on one day and dynamic effort on one day and we switch that up every 72 hours, but we work in quadrants so that the nervous system doesn't get too um, overloaded in one side of the body. So what I mean by that is on day one, you will do max effort upper, or I should say max effort lower, dynamic effort upper. And then we flip that every 72 hours to allow for the central nervous system, the autonomic nervous system to get back to parasympathetic, basically meaning you're bringing down the stress so that you don't overtrain. So, with that, I also put in that GPP work, right, at the end so that they can maintain fitness, right? So all of that workload just on the weight room work has to be accumulated or has to be uh, jotted down because it is accumulating over time. Mm -hmm. So what I want to do is I want to keep constant logs of how stressful this training is. And you have to make sure you undulate the intensities throughout the week. Otherwise, you get too much of one thing, your body's going to basically flatline and you're going to go ahead and get into overtraining very quickly. And once you get into overtraining, then all these other problems start to occur, whether that be, you know, getting non-contact injuries, having sleepless nights, not waking up, you know, not waking up with energy, having an appetite, you know, basically suppressed, and then also... Um, negatively affecting your waistline. So again, body fat starts to occur. You, you end up starting to get, you know, skinny fat in a way, right? Where you're losing weight, but you're st still staying fat, yeah. which, is a, which is an issue, right? I know that sounds kind of crazy, but we've seen it happen. Um, and that happens a lot inside of a training camp because people are not taking into account their specific training demands and monitoring their intensity levels throughout the weeks and months. It's probably something that the older a fighter get, the more you understand and start to respect more. Like, and I feel your program is when you started one time, like first camp with a fighter, after like a few camps, it's something you know him even better. 
Like you, yeah. you probably know how his body reacts more than even those. <laughs> and uh, that the more you do it, the better it gets. But I was wondering also, do you sometimes encounter like uh, exercise that just someone just doesn't like or one specific stuff that he likes to like? I know Dustin likes to run a lot, for example. Yeah. Is it also something that I guess he needs mentally because it helps staying focused, stuff like this? It's some stuff you have to deal and talk with them a lot, actually. Like, I think you have a psychological role more important than what you believe. You're not just here to tell them, press that, do that. There's like a real, uh, how can I say this? Like, you really with those guys for like six, seven, eight weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I give them what they want, but I also make sure I give them what they need. You know, and there is a happy medium that you have to come across where, especially if you're working with elite level fighters that have been in the game forever and are accustomed, like they, they, they come accustomed to certain things that they like to do. And again, it is more psychological than, than, phys than physiological or physical. Um, and so for that, I don't, want it, I don't want it to negatively affect the outcome of the camp. So with that being said, I just, I just basically level with them. Like the first time that I talked to Dustin, You know, um, I remember this because I know he's had that hip issue for, man, since like 2000 and I think he told me 2004, 2005. Wow. Well, it's been a long time. Like people don't really know what, like how long this kid's been fighting with that hip issue, you know, and, and not being able to externally rotate and bring his knee up past his hip, which is... You know, it's very hard when you I was, know. Yeah, I was going to ask you that because Dustin was like a great fighter. He can do everything. He seems to struggle to kick very high. Like, I, I almost, I might have seen kick some body kick, but like, I'm not going to say I laugh because he will destroy you. But like, uh, he's a good leg kicker. He has a good looking. But the other day, I was like, when he fought Gaethje, I remember watching the fight and saying, Dustin, he just seems to struggle every time he just gets his hip working a little bit. And uh, so now it might be better than If you look at the Gaethje fight, like, he was getting hit with those leg kicks because he couldn't. He couldn't move his, his leg. That was, that was the lead leg is a hip issue. So when he tries to externally rotate or try to, you know, basically uh, pivot out, he really can't. He has, to, he has to move and then he has to, like, back up and then angle out. He can't just pivot. So now he's good, though. We, he's had the hip resurfacing. Um, he's had stem cells put in. And he's feeling better. There's a lot more range of motion there. And then from a strength and conditioning standpoint, I had to watch that range. Because if he would dip down lower than 45, you know, like, like right above parallel was where our sweet spot was. Anything below that, then it would catch and it would cause severe pain. So the ball in socket was not moving freely. Like it would catch okay. and there was like, uh, there was rigidity. So again, it's no ball at that time. It was more of like a, a cube almost. Yeah. Every time. So it didn't allow him to do that. And then when he would run, you know, repeated pounding on that joint, especially on the ball and socket on the hip joint, um, it would cause irritation and it would, he'd be in pain for a couple of days afterwards. But he just became accustomed to dealing with the pain because he actually liked to, liked to do it. So I said, man, I don't think this is a great thing. Like telling me about your hip, I'm like, bro, I think we should try to start doing maybe some swimming or some biking or something along the lines of that where it's not causing that constant pounding on the joint. And he's like, man, I don't care what you say. I respect you, um, but I'm not stopping running. And this was like, this was probably our first camp together, really. You know, um, and so I was like, all right, well, level with me. And I told him this. I said, let's limit it to two times a week. So we limited it to two times a week. And now we're limiting it to one time a week. 
you know, just because now he trusts me more. He knows that I'm, I know what I'm talking about. So worked out yeah that that's a great example man thank you so much great insight and yeah i was it's funny you said that because like i never thought it was because of the hip injury i just thought i don't know maybe he just doesn't like it but yeah it felt that from so many fights he need to reset also often his foot his footwork maybe was part of this but uh, it's crazy that he fought for so long at this crazy level like i mean his win streak from the like the middle to the holloway fight it's like one of yeah. the best win streak in lightweight and he fought this with like a hip that was like destroyed almost yeah. so is it after the habit fight say dude come on it's time or is it him who actually wanted to get the surgery um he wanted it and we were like it's time like both pretty much Perfect. Like, we both came to a comment was like i was like bro and he said it too even if he went wins or loses he was gonna do the surgery no matter what and I was oh like, yeah i didn't mean because he lost i mean because there were probably a good chance that he wouldn't fight for a long time because often you know when you lose well after your championship fight, you always got long break. So it wasn't it wasn't that because like he could get a fight whenever he wants. You know, it's just it's just a fact of making sure that his body is intact because he's only like thirty. He's only thirty one years so old. Wants, 30, yeah, like that. He's my age. I think he's younger than me. Although yeah, I, I'm born in ninety nine. I'm born in nineteen ninety nine. I think he's. Yeah, yeah I think okay. he's the same year than me. But whatever. But he's like thirty. Yeah, yeah. he's same year as you. So, um, you know, like. I said, I said, bro, I was like, if you want to, if you want to fight, you know, six more years, eight more years, whatever the case, you got to get that thing fixed now. You know what I'm saying? Like, because you don't know what's going to happen. You're going to need to have that ability to move. You know what I mean? Especially getting older. So, you know, and then, and then like, obviously Mike Brown was talking about it. Diet Davis, his other boxing coach, we all collectively was like, man, this, this needs to happen. So mm -hmm. definitely got it done. And we're happy that he has it done. He's coming to me tomorrow to start to start training um you know for whatever for us we're looking at dan hooker i, th I think that that's that's the fight that's going to be made so you know in yeah, a couple of months yeah really. i would like to see the steel fight to care but uh yeah. i think it's a good fight for him and um yeah actually i'm i'm a, if you talk just one minute about Dustin, i'm a big big fan of Dustin inside outside the fighting just yeah. like he's a one dude to be honest like i i i, I like there's so many fighters that I respect as fighter, and when I, I heard who they are, person, I'm not like this. Dustin is one of the guys you just see him, and I want to go for a run for like an hour. It's like he has that thing about him, and what he does with his <clears throat> the Good Fight Foundation, everything just the feel, feel. You feel like he's someone you meet, and you just feel uplifted. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it is completely real. Like he's not doing it for 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 like clout or anything like that. Like honestly, a lot of the stuff that he does, he does he keeps it under wraps. He really doesn't talk, tell anybody about it, you know, or he was telling me like he, you know, he gave, you know, uh, I think like his whole middle school or I think it was middle school or elementary school um, backpacks for the entire, uh, for the entire. I remember this. It was for, yeah. with the Pettis fight, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I was like, bro, like, I was like, oh, that's cool. I'm like, don't go broke over it, you know, <laughs> but, but he just has that and he's not going to go broke over it. He's got a lot of, he's got, he's good with his money. And he's very intelligent. No, but it just seemed to be someone who's at the right place, right time in his life. And yeah, no, he's very, he's very smart, man. When it comes down to his money and where he invests it, um, you know, he bought his first house, I, I believe, when he was like 18 or 19 years old. So I mean, he and he and he did it all for the strength of his winnings, you know. So it wasn't like anything was given to him, you know. He he had to work. Yeah, he has that old school stuff that he said. I remember before the all the way fight that everything he got, he got it through fighting and. 
he didn't say something cool. He got punched by punch against the best guy in the world. It was there. It's true. You just keep your mouth shut and just fight beast after beast. And those fights are crazy. But yeah, Dustin is like, uh, at some point, I thought he might be someone you need to protect for himself, like someone who could be overworking. I wonder if you ever met someone like this. Like, a, I know there's some beast that went to HD, like athletic beast, like Romero, Alexis Villa, who used to be crazy at this skill. Uh, Origuchi, him. do you work with Origuchi never? Who? Kyoji Origuchi, do you work with him? Oh, uh, Kyoji. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. He's another he, one. He seems yeah. to be a crazy athlete like that can go. One of the best I have. One of the best athletes I've, I've coached or fighters. Yeah, he might be. To my, in my opinion, he's probably one of the best fighters there is in the gym. Yeah, I, I do believe so, man. Like, pound for pound, for sure. And pound for pound, one of the most, the strongest guys in the gym, too, as well. When you're talking about, like, relative strength. You know, like, Do you have some news about his injuries? What's that? Do you have some news about his injuries? I think he was injured. So, so yeah, he's, I mean, the, the problem, again, this is, this is another issue that we have with Kyoji. So Kyoji wasn't working with me for a, for a while. Um, he was working with somebody else outside of the gym. And um, he had, like, a sciatic issue. Um, and what ended up happening was his hips were misaligned. And the way he moves, it just kind of caused more torque on the hip. So it went up the spine and, and caused some pinching and causing some sciatica to occur. Now, after that, we were looking to get that fixed. He was working with me. And then I guess he tore his ACL while sparring. Um, I think somebody just came down on it wrong. And, um, but I would tell you this, eight weeks post-op, and he was able to do single leg squats. <laughs> I mean, crazy. Like, single leg squats um, – I believe he was able to do, you know, walking, bodyweight lunges, backwards, forwards, and sideways, because I was doing some of his, uh, some of his uh, post-op. And then um, hamstrings were strong. You know, you don't see that with eight weeks post-op of an ACL surgery, like a complete rupture. I have an ACL uh, injury too myself. I got it from, from jiu-jitsu, you know. And he is like, if anybody can get back to 100% as quick as he did, like, I think that – that kind of solidifies their athleticism and their ability to cope with stress. So, but he is his worst enemy when it comes down to not taking a break. And that's, and that comes from his upbringing, though, that Japanese upbringing, you know, those guys just constantly work. So he'll, he'll go strength, he'll do strength and conditioning with me. He'll hit pads right after, and then he'll go for like a five mile jog. And that's like a regular day, but it'll be back to back to back. There's no time in between. Like he'll just go. And, um, and he's the type of guy that he cannot sit, sit still. So we try, to, we try to pull him back. You know, I, I see him trying to go out the door and I call him in, you know, type guy. So, but, he's, but he's looking – I haven't – we all haven't been to the gym because of Corona, but, you know. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, but, but – You know, everything you tell me, it actually makes me reassure me because <laughs> – you know, before I talked with you, I, I, I thought it was like this, but I wasn't sure. I thought oh, maybe it's only limited, like there's not that much partnership or relationship with the fighters. And a year, I remember a year ago, uh, there was Matt Bourne, uh, Mike Bourne, who was on Instagram Live when Jorge fought Darren Till. And just, you could ask questions. I just asked a question, how close do you work with Phil Daru? And I guess because he was on Instagram Live, he didn't want to get deep. So you just say, oh, Phil is in the room here and I'm here. And he just stopped and I was like, come on. <laughs> and I wanted to know, like, because 
everything you say mentioned that his game plan and the game plan he's going to have with his fighter has a huge impact over what you're going to do with the fighter. So I guess actually you have to, you and him actually have to, at least the fighter and you have a lot to talk about, um, are they going to fight, who they're going to fight. So is that some fighter that actually asks you advice about either taking a fight on short notice, changing opponents, or changing weight class? Like Edson is going to featherweight, for example. Is it something you talk a lot with them? Yeah, yeah, uh, as much as we can. Even the managers, too. Like, because some of the managers were like, Edson's manager, Alex Davis, will... Oh, like, okay. Yeah, he'll constantly... He's... The, the build-up to like, oh, can we make 45? And he was... I, I swear Alex probably called me, you know, every 10 minutes at, at, at points where I was like, yeah, man, we got to get blood work done. We got to get, you know, his lab testing done. We got to see where he's at, you know, from a body weight perspective and body fat perspective. Um, and we got the analysis done by guys from the ISSN, which is one of the leading nutritional uh, certification companies. And it was at a lab tested by PhDs in in nutrition and physiology, exercise physiology. And they pretty much told me that he is good to go to make 45. And that was one of the things where I was like, all right, I had to get statistical data to, to prove that this could actually work in our favor. Um, and then there's other cases of like taking fights on short notice, like Dustin's, you know, obviously asked me about a few things. And, and it's just basically based off of my knowledge that they know that quote unquote expert in, I guess how much can we prepare in that short notice and is it possible for me to be dominant? So I give them my two cents and then, you know, the great thing about, like I always say, the great thing about being a part of American top team is that I can constantly communicate with the coaches if I need to, you know, but for the most part, like the fighters communicate very well with me now. So there's no real issue in the beginning. You know, the guys don't want to, don't want to say they're hurt or they don't want to say they're tired. So I have to go to the coach. But now the guys are pretty much accustomed to me. They understand that I'm not there to, like, beat them into the ground and I'm not there to judge them. And honestly, there's no need to judge them. They're, they're at the highest level, you know, of, of, yeah, of sure. physical sport in the world. I know that they're not soft. You know what I'm saying? So that, that's not the case. The case is like, okay, I need to know if you're ready to go. Do we need to back off? Or do we need to send you back home and go rest? So those are the things that I, and it, and it is constant, you know, especially with the younger guys because they don't really have a whole lot of guidance and they're lowest on the totem pole when you're talking about ATT, right? The lower guys, the regional scene guys, the guys that are not fighting on the main cards of a Bellator or UFC fight. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm with them more than I'm with the elites because yes. they got to build up their abilities. So they must be refreshing also to get new people sometime in the gym. Yeah, and those guys are working hard, man, because they're trying to climb the ladder, you know. So they'll, they'll come to me two, three times a day sometimes, and I got to, you know, basically it's mobility work and a lot of other things. But, you know, they'll come to me as much as they can, even with advice or nutritional advice. You know, we work, we work pretty hand-in-hand -hand with Lockhart, um, George Lockhart. So that, that helps out, you know, with that. I have a guy who used to intern with me, Eric Pena, who works underneath George Lockhart, but he's in-house at ATT for us, or at least at my gym too, because I own two facilities next to the gym. And, um, you know, he's either there yeah. helping the guys out if he's not doing a UFC event. So it's good. I mean, we have, we have enough to where we can, uh, you know, coordinate everybody's strengths to help the, the athlete out in the most possible way. 
Edson is fighting this Saturday or next week? Next week. Next week? Okay. Do, do you think the white cut is going well? He had a good camp? Yeah. Um, surprisingly, in my opinion. Like, I knew that he would get the weight down. But I didn't, I didn't know how his performance was going to be. And from what I'm hearing from the coaches, because they're having private, they have to. So, like, not even all the coaches can be in there at once. So, like, I can't be in there when the striking coach is in there or, you know, you know, so, like, and then, and then he comes to my gym. Mm. So, I was looking at it like, yeah, man, his explosive power is still there. His endurance seems like it's still there. Um, he's telling me that he's feeling great inside of sparring. So, and he's about, he's, he's around 164 right now. So, that's pretty good. You know, it's right on point where we need to be. Right, yeah, he has a fight Dan Ige, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a good fight for sure. I'm very curious to see him at 145. I like it son a lot. And uh, he's one of those guys who's been fighting for a long time now. He's not especially old, but like he fought, I don't know. Like, I think I started watching the sport, he was already fighting. Yeah, he's got a lot of fights in Muay Thai too. Like people don't know. You know? And it's the same thing with Joanna. Joanna's got 100 in. Yeah, I knew this. Yeah, I knew she had like crazy amount of fight. I'm a big, big fan of Joanna. And... Uh, Yeah, I think I, I liked her because I think I probably start seeing her when she joined the UFC, when she fought Gadelia the first time. So it was like second fight in the UFC. And after that, when she joined ATT, I remember just watching her Instagram and seeing the session training with like, oh, that girl. She's yeah, something yeah, yeah. special. She's and uh, I actually saw one of her Instagram posts when she felt that she let you down. And you answer, I was like, come on, you let nobody down. You're such a wire. It's crazy. I love when guys, you know, like never in my life I got tested like she She got in replied like this. And when guys like this are women like this, are humble enough to say oh, maybe I let down people, I'm like, oh guy, I got a lot of walking to do. <laughs> like it's crazy how, how deep it goes. Yeah, man. She yeah, like it, it's funny because she has like so much pride and and she's so determined that she knows in her heart like she should have won that fight. I believe she won the fight, to be honest with you. Even then after the fight, you know, you can't really break her spirit. That's the one thing that I see about her. Like, she's always going to keep going forward. You know what I'm saying? There's not going to be a time where she's going to run and hide, you know, and, and, and curl into a ball and cry her way out. She gets right back up, man, and, and keeps moving forward. And that's one thing that I can see. That, that's why she's a champion. No matter what belt, if she has it or doesn't have it, she's a champion from that aspect because of the fact that she's willing to get up every time and keep moving forward and not let anything hinder her, you know, going forward. So I – For her, her legacy is stamped, in my opinion. I don't think she's... Big time. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big... Bar. You're preaching someone who... I'm a big, big, big fan. And, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, the unbreakable spirit is very, very what I like. Us kids was the first thing that I catch, but every time I saw her get, like, even the second Gadelia fight where she lost, like, the two first one, and she got back strong, and she has crazy conditioning. She knows to pace herself. She's very, very fun to watch, and when you follow her, like, her training with you, with Mike Bond, everything... She just seemed to be the great athlete to work with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's she's phenomenal. Uh, she's someone uh, I know. She's like a big star, now, so it probably I need to do a lot of work before I can have an interview with her. Or stuff like that. But it's someone I would love to break down stuff because she's one of those girls that love the fighting, the real fighting, and who can talk about the sport more than outside stuff. Yeah, you might want to shoot your shot, man. Give her shoot her a DM. See how it goes. Uh, you guys will see. We never know. <laughs> But yeah, she, she seemed like someone who's 
like a dream to work with. And actually, now that we talk about you, Anna, most of the fight nights, five on fights, right? Like, when is the last time she fought three rounds against OS, maybe? Yeah. But it was because he was on a big card. And, but you know what I mean? Like Dustin, Johanna, Edson, uh, maybe not Junior. Most of the time, it's going to be five rounds. And I'm going to ask you, because, for example, yesterday I was talking with uh, Diego Ferreira, like I told you, and he only fought three rounds fight so far in his career. Because he never got to be the main event yet, or fought for like, you know, because he's been on like uh, the, some good main cards, but on the on the yeah. prelims, he never had liked like a fight night. So I was wondering, how does it change anything to go from three to five for someone who never did it? Um, because you have I, that question mark, right? To know can they do it? Uh, it's not a it's not a question because they do it every day in, in sparring. You know mm. what I mean, like. Yes, there's a heightened sense of urgency, obviously, when the fight, when it's a true fight, you know, but that comes with mentality. That comes with the psychology of the fight game, whereas, like, you have to have full confidence in yourself that you can go five rounds. And then usually what ends up happening, it's not the fact that they are not conditioned. These guys are conditioned. It's the point of them letting the, letting the, uh, whatever you want to call it, the event or, you know, all of the people drawn them into a an ability to not do what they need to do yeah so what you said it's like it's too much anxiety it's too much stress overload of stress and that's what negatively affects their conditioning it's it's, it's that it's that that heightened sense of urgency right that 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 experience that they know they'll never get if they if they you know if they lose this fight and there's also sometimes the fact that not fighting your fight like if you're a pressure fighter and you get back up on time, of course, you're going to get uh, tired quicker than when you fight your fight. But that, this is pure fighting that you need to get your, the fighter in front of you to fight at your rhythm. And I was going to ask you that, um, is there like some way that you get some fighters to learn or to fight tired, to learn or to master the fact that you're going to be tired? To learn how to master. Yeah, like for example, some there are some fighters that are very good. Even when they're tired, when they are fatigued and they are tired, they are still pretty good as they compose, not getting lazy stuff like this. Is it something you can work on? Just yeah, dude, yeah, you gotta get used to being that state of yeah. tiredness. That's that's very important because you are gonna be in that in that particular state at some point in the fight. The goal really is again to stay technical to keep with the game plan, and that comes a lot with experience, but it also comes with the you know the uh, build up you know what i'm saying so what, what we got to do is we got to make sure that they are ready for those stresses and then give them that stimulus to, to allow them to still be technical even when they're slightly fatigued this can be done inside the weight room this can be done inside the training room when it comes down to sparring um we do different types of fight circuits to where we get them as physically exhausted as possible from a from a physiological standpoint and then they have to work technically um, with you know either pad work or even sparring um, with a with a fresh body, so that they can still be on point, they can still have their timing and you know their everything down. Is it something that you work with? Oh, I forgot his name. Uh, I think his ad is like Mister Mental Muscle, like one of your yeah. yeah they, so like he does everything that's related like to the brain and stuff, and like you do your physical session, and then they work with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's one of the things that we do also, too, is cognitive conditioning. Whereas, like, it, instead of taxing the body physically anymore, now we're taxing the mind. But the goal really is to, again, 
and Dustin does it a lot. I actually brought Nick in. Nick was uh, Nick played high school football with me, so like I brought Nick in. He's uh, he's got his master's in sports psychology, and um, I remember him doing that. And I was like, man, I really need your help with Dustin. I think Dustin wants to try this out. Come on in. So we started working with it, and you know, it's been it's been a huge benefit, not only for um not only for again like being having the ability to be cognitively functioning, even when you're slightly fatigued, but also because it's a good change of pace from the monotony of training, where it's something that the guys like to do, the girls like to do for fun, even. And it's not that physical demanding, you know, exercise to where like they feel exhausted and they can't move. It's brain, like your brain is kind of rattled or rattling around, but you become a lot, a lot more of a quicker thinker and things become clearer for you. So that's, that's a major key. When we, when we talk about getting ready for fights, we even have a baseline for that too as well. And Nick would probably be a good person to have on the podcast to talk a little bit more about that. You know, because Nick, yeah. Nick had really no idea. He didn't really know anything about MMA. Like he just knew, like when I brought him to Dustin, it was the first day um, the countdown show was there. So like he was like, whoa. He's like, all these people... <laughs> So he didn't know anything, and then he started to learn about different fighters. And, you know, he's been with me uh, for about four years now working with the fighters. So, but, yeah, he's a good guy to have on and talk about that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I was curious about this. And, um, oh, yeah, I have a few questions left if you want. Um, I was wondering, you know, like, it happens sometimes because it's a crazy business. Like, let's say your fight, like, one of your fighters, he goes, like, six, eight week camps, like a long camp. And for some reason, the fight doesn't happen on fight week and there is no fight. I was just wondering if he has to exercise. You know what I mean? Like, if you get a long camp and you get into a fight, at least you, you use a lot of energy. You get everything you, you did before, you were used to something. Is there something you do when fighters that just get fight concert at the last time? Just to recommend to go for like a long one, to go like some exercise, or do you just, it's just some bullshit from analysts that doesn't need to be worked with? Usually, if that happens, they're already pissed off, so they end up doing something physical without oh. me having to say anything. Um, but you got to remember, like the guys at UFC, if they're in the if they're if they're fighting in the UFC, they're probably somewhere else, not in their hometown or something like that. So, you know, yeah, they may do a quick run or they may hit the pads or something like that. Maybe doing a little bit of grappling with some of the teammates or help their teammates out if they're on the same card together. I've seen that happen. You know, but it's already, they're already pissed off. But the good thing about that is that they're still in peak form. So, you know, if, if anything, if the fight gets pushed back another week, well, that's good because now we can still coast all the way to the fight. Yeah, that was something I was going to ask you. Like, to me, because I'm not in the gym and I don't know, that's why I ask you. Like, if I, I guess when the fight happened, the guy is at the peak, right, of his performance, everything is. And I felt like if the fight is delayed for like two weeks, is it a big problem? Can he stay in that peak for like a few weeks? It's, it's pretty tough. It's pretty tough. We need to maintain. Um, what I would do, though, if there was two weeks there, I would probably deload them on one week, which is basically bringing down volume, bringing down intensity a little bit, and then I would ramp up for one more week and then bring them back down. So let's say, for instance, that week of the fight, they got canceled. Now you have two weeks left for the fight. The one week would be a deload. The next week would be um, you know, a ramp up, and then I would deload again. So then it's like... So you would need to go down a little bit to get back up, right? Is that what you mean? Just a little bit, not not all. No, no, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? I would say about 75, 85%. Just decrease a little bit. Yeah. 
Yeah, just a little bit. And that's, that's what we call delayed transformation, where you just kind of slow decreases throughout the weeks to allow them to gain uh, recovery and then also get that super compensation effect where they'll have all of the stuff that they've worked on in the past be heightened to the next degree so that they can utilize it inside the fight. All right. Um, I have a question that's kind of like something that could, could happen in the future. Are you familiar with uh, Cedric Dumbe? He's a French kickboxer. Uh, yes, I heard of him. Yes. Yeah, he fought in, he fights still in glory, he's in contract with glory. He's French, that's why I mentioned him. But yeah. like, in a, he's a great, great kickboxer, like very, very, very good kickboxer, like yeah. world class. But he wants to fight in MMA, like many people, money wise, everything. You know why? Okay. And um, he was on the Joe Rogan podcast, and he, he, the way he talked about it, it felt crazy because he had no strength and conditioning, conditioning coach until like maybe two or three years ago. He would just eat some good stuff, but like he's a crazy athlete. He has crazy gift that some people doesn't have. So yeah. that is good thing for him. But like he was talking to transitioning to MMA and I was like, okay, that's a good question to ask you because so obviously the kickboxing part, the striking part, he just needs to get used to be in a cage, but it's going to be okay. What he needs to is to work a lot on grappling. He has so much catch up to do, right? And I was working. So if, for example, he was entering your camp today and it's okay, Cedric is going to fight his first fight in MMA, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I guess it's gonna work more. You're gonna need to develop the muscle from the grab for grappling, right? But at the same time, not destroy all he has in ability and movement from the striking. Do you know what I mean? Or does it make, yeah, not make sense? So this is what I would do. So he's first of all, from a skills perspective, he's gonna get a lot of time on the mats. Just I know that he'll be spending a lot of time with Steve Mako and Mike Brown. Um, he would probably do more of that than anything because they are going to get strength out of that grappling practice. Um, we're getting a lot of quasi-isometric strength. And for me, I'm going to work more local muscular endurance because I know he doesn't get a whole lot of that, especially in his legs and in his, um, his upper back. Um, I want to build up his upper back, his grip strength. I also want to build up his hip strength. And I know that he gets a lot of that from kickboxing, but also you got to think about takedown defense too as well. Those guys are going to try to take him down. So a lot of posterior chain, a lot of hip strength. Um, and then again, we want to work on local muscular endurance. So lactate buffering capacity, which is basically a lot of volume in a particular muscle group so that it can allow him to buffer out the lactate buildup so that he can perform his, his skill, which is striking. And then I'll, I would obviously check if he had, you know, his VO2 max, I would check his lactate threshold. I would check all of that just to see if we do have a baseline of aerobic capacity. And that's kind of give us like a, a, an overall look at how well he's conditioned um, from an aerobic standpoint. And then I would work on his ability to produce power in different ranges, whether that be takedown defense with the hips, and that's gonna be more like kettlebell swings and sumo deadlifts, things like that. And then close quarters, it would be a lot of like, again, quasi isometrics, isometrics, a lot of carries um, whether it be a, a heavy med ball carry, um, whether it be farmer's carries, kettlebell, you know, bottoms up kettlebell carries, mm -hmm. anything that's going to um, cause force or I should say isometric force in a long fashion um, to allow for him to be strong in close quarters. So because of the fact that he's, he's definitely going to get pushed up against the cage mm -hmm. and people are to take him down. So he has to have the ability to be strong in close quarters. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, we'll see. If he does do it, he's welcome to come to American Top Team. <laughs> yeah, I, I would love to see it.
yeah and i was oh yeah i was i was wondering if there's one specific athlete that under your work would say went the furthest instead in te, instead of in terms of performance someone you never thought would get that that great someone that just blew your mind maybe it's joanna i don't know but uh yeah it's it's a cross between joanna and dustin to be honest yeah because those are the two that, those are the two that never really lifted weights before me Wow. And so, like, you can see a total change in their body composition. You can see a change in their power production, their athleticism. Um, yeah, I would say that. It was like, I got before and after pictures of when they, when they first started with me to now. And, like, you could just see the, just the structure of them now is just a lot more solid when you're talking about, like, structural integrity and balance and, and symmetry. Um, and I'm not talking about just bodybuilding type stuff, but what I'm saying is that, like, that will help with producing force and redirecting force, absorbing force, um, you know, absorbing shots, things like that. And that was one thing that I really wanted to do was build their bodies up functionally to a degree to where it's going to help them in the cage and not hinder them. And then also um, looking at it from an athletic standpoint, like I remember, you know, I don't want to put him out there, but I remember like Dustin couldn't bench like 95 pounds when we first started, you know, and 95 pounds is nothing. You know what I mean? So, yeah. But, but, you know, and it's, not, it's not that he wasn't strong in certain ranges. Like, he's super strong in the clinch. Like, for me, I, I grapple with him, and I'm like, man, the kid is strong. Like, he, he definitely has that grappling strength, but he didn't have that, he didn't have that ability to, to uh, express force, you yeah. know. And so now he, he has that ability to do so. so yeah, but good. actually, it doesn't surprise me too much because, you know, like well, you said, but it's very rare like in combat sports, in striking, that you get someone that can be strong, like, I mean, like with a good grip or strong in the clinch and that like hits hard. The, like from, you often get one of the boss at first, like, for example, a guy like Andre Ward, he was very strong on the inside, but he wasn't like a big puncher, you know what I mean? And there's a lot of people who are like big puncher, but they don't have that hard. And it takes time to actually create yeah. both of them. And when you have, when you have both, you're, you're super dangerous, but... For sure, yeah, definitely, definitely. That's what we want. We want to get them as well-rounded as possible in all aspects. So do you spend more time? Because I think there's also some NFL players at ATT, right? So there's a lot of different sports. You, what you do is MMA and boxing, you said judo also? Well, at the moment, I work with judo, boxing, MMA. I also work with youth football, high school football, uh, baseball, youth baseball, high school baseball. Um, what else? What other sport? Uh, yeah, uh, track and field, uh, some jumpers, uh, tactical training. So a lot of the military guys, police, firemen. So there's a lot going on in my gym. At ATT, it's more for the fighters. Okay, obviously. your gym. Okay. So and then I have I have a couple of NFL guys that I train on the off season. So when do you rest? Oh, bro, it's it's, it's almost non it's not almost non-existent, but I do get as much sleep as I, as I possibly can. Um, but I got a lot going on, man. I got a lot of moving parts. Is your kids old enough so you can sleep correctly? Or is he like still very small? Uh, yeah, my five-year-old, he doesn't allow oh, okay. me to play with him. And he's so... I waiting for me to play with him right now. Actually. Okay, I don't want to keep you. I just one last question and I'll let you go. Um, so if you can rest, when do you walk out? Do you walk out sometime during the session also? Or do you stay in crazy shape like you are? No, no, no. 
I usually get my training in in between sessions or like midday, you know. So I actually trained right before I got here and went on the podcast. So that's like, and sorry, go ahead. No, that's it. that's it. Okay, and so yeah, you also have your podcast that started, and uh, uh, you said it was not only about about strength and conditioning, it would be more about being strong, right? It's yeah, not about yeah. it's not gonna be just guys from MMA and boxing can be kind no. of like from people overcoming stuff and getting discipline and strong yeah. every day in their life. Just just people that are interesting and that done something in life, you know what I mean, that I want to talk to. You know, a lot of the guys that, that I respect in the industry, you know, um, you're going to have a large amount, whether it be in the fitness industry, whether it be in politics, whether it be in acting, comedy, um, anybody who's doing big things and solidifies a strong person, in my opinion. You know, those are the guys that are overcoming obstacles, that made it out of situations. Um, not just strong physically, but also mentally. And that's one thing that I really wanted to accomplish with this podcast was there's so many layers to a field of roof, where it's not just, you know, MMA. It's not just strength and conditioning. There's so many different things that I, that I want to uh, get to know. And I want to talk to people that have been around the world and been and seen things and done things that are worth mentioning. So that's why I decided to do it. That's dope. Looking forward to it, man. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, it's consistency is key, man. Like, it's he who stays in, in the game the longest wins. You know what I mean? And yeah. So at the end of the day, it's like no matter what the game is, it may go off in certain different areas, but as long as progression is going forward, you're still doing the right things. Like, I may jump and do different things, but that's just basically because I like to do several different things at once. But the, 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 the entire preface around everything is going forward. It's not ever going backwards. So no matter what I'm doing, whether I have eight moving parts, all those eight moving parts are fucking coming at you like an army. You know what I mean? So that's the one thing that I would say that I'm that I'm that I'm good at is is keeping constant flow towards progression. If that makes sense. Uh, so thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. To me, it was great. Uh, learned a lot of stuff, and uh, hopefully, maybe sometime next month we can not next month, but in the future, if you want to get back, come back. No problem. Yeah. I would love it. It's awesome. Yeah. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. Have a good day. See you soon. Thank you.